public statements from governments in France, Belgium and, and the UK have highlighted you know, hundreds of extremist prisoners that they would be um, considering the, the release over the next sort of two years. I think our view would be that having the, the street cred and the experience and the skills they've developed in the conflict zone would make them a more, um, more powerful recruiter because they could talk with experience. You're listening to The Lid Is On from UN News. The phenomenon of foreign terrorist fighters leaving their home countries to go and fight in places such as Syria, Iraq and Libya is now on the wane. But it's been replaced by another problem. What to do with these people and their families once they return home. The UN's Counterterrorism Executive Directorate for the Security Council, or CTED, is responsible for helping member states to deal with the threats posed by foreign terrorist fighters. Periodically, CTED produces reports on current issues of concern, and the July edition outlines the increasing worries about the risk posed by the forthcoming release of imprisoned fighters. David Wells is the coordinator for the Political Analysis and Research Unit for CTED. When he came into the UN studios, I started by asking him why the fighters are returning home and why the numbers going abroad to join terrorist groups have dropped so dramatically. Two broad reasons. Partly ISIL's loss of control of the, most of the territory it controlled. So they've lost around 98% of the territory it controlled across Iraq and Syria. And as a consequence of that, it's a less attractive brand. They're failing. They're not succeeding as, as they seem to be before. But I think the other key factor is member state responses um, in the, in, in, to, to deal with the foreign terrorist fighter threat after 2014. So there have been a lot of measures, particularly around border control, around preventing travel and, and, and criminalising individuals seeking to travel to their conflict zones. So it's interesting you call it a brand because so much of the recruitment has been done through uh, various social media channels. Um, has that tactic changed if they're not doing so well on the ground? Are they focusing different kinds of efforts to, to attract people in a different way? Yeah, there's definitely been a shift in narrative and I think also a shift in what they're asking people to do. So around 2016, as it became harder for people to travel and, and the brand was being impacted in terms of military defeats, there was a, a noticeable shift in terms of what they asked people to do. So they began to more specifically ask individuals to carry out attacks in the location that they were rather than travelling. So that really shifted the threat environment from travel to potentially attacks in, in uh, people's locations. Now, the report we're talking about came out in July of this year. Was there anything specific that prompted the content of this report? Yeah, so CTED uh, engages with all member states really on, on terrorism, counterterrorism issues, and uh, it had really arisen in a, 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 quite a few different scenarios where we were speaking to member states about their concerns and, and what trends they were facing, and they raised this issue of foreign terrorist fighters being release from prison in the next um, six to 18 months, really. Because many of them, many of the, these uh, foreign terrorist fighters, the, the sentences are quite short. Yeah, this, I mean, it's particularly pronounced in, in Europe, but it's not Europe um, only as an issue. Uh, there are obviously multiple reasons for short sentences. I, th I think some of these individuals return to their homeland before a lot of the countermeasures were introduced that, that introduced extra criminal measures around the, the travel issue. But there's also some broad challenges around evidence and admissibility of evidence that's, that's come from the battlefield or from intelligence sources or from digital sources and the, the social media piece that you referenced earlier. Now, I'll come to the specific threats in just a second. But, but before that, give me an idea of the scale. How many people are we talking about? Well, the, the, the difficulty here is that a lot of member states or very few member states disaggregate when they talk about what they refer to as violent extremist prisoners. So 
a lot of member states have told us how many um, finite experienced prisoners they might have in their system at any one point, but this, they didn't disaggregate between individuals who've been convicted of terrorist offences, individuals who've been radicalised in prison, or individuals who've returned from the, the conflict zone. So we don't really have a sense of how many foreign fighters there are that are due to be released uh, in, in this scenario, but we know that member states have raised it as a particular concern. But do you have an estimate? Is it what we mean, thousands, tens of thousands? Uh, it would be difficult to put a figure on it. We know um, research suggests that around 7,000 foreign fighters are in, are in prison, or whereas of late last year across the world. Obviously, different member states have got different approaches to sentencing and the length of sentencing, different offences. Um, in the European context, we know um, research, and I, I think it's public statements from governments in France, Belgium, and, and the UK have highlighted you know, hundreds of extremist prisoners that they would be um, considering the, the release of in the next sort of two years as an indicative figure. Now, radicalisation is, uh, is one of your uh, key concerns that you mentioned in the report. Now, obviously, radicalisation was a big problem for the fighters who were going out to places like Iraq and Syria. Now they're coming back. Many of them, I would presume, are, are battle-hardened. Does this mean that they are more potent sources of radicalisation than when they left their home countries? Yeah, it's something that's been borne out both in our engagement with member states and in research that there is a real hotspot effect um, when you look at recruitment rates across different countries. And, and a lot of that's been attributed to sort of charismatic individuals who did have the ability to recruit and radicalise and inspire. Um, you know, I think our view would be that having the, the street cred and the experience and the skills they've developed in the conflict zone would make them a more um, more powerful recruiter because they could talk with experience. But I think it was also fair to say that we don't think every returnee is going to go down this path. A lot of people are returning fairly jaded and disengaged with the cause. So I think that question of uncertainty about attitudes and disengagement are, are one of the real issues here. Now, I'm sure this is also not a new phenomenon necessarily, but you also mentioned the um, the fact that there are prominent terrorist offenders who are continuing to organise within prisons. Yeah, I mean, it's something that's been, we've seen over time. We saw it in the Northern Ireland context um, decades ago. We've seen it in Iraq and, and ISIL senior leadership who were in prison together and used that as an opportunity to regroup. It's it's still unclear what relationship there is between prison and terrorism. We've, we, we have high-profile examples, anecdotal examples. We have examples of individuals who've gone into prison for a different offence and have come out and con conducted terrorist attacks. But the, the exact relationship between um, prison and, and what, what happens next is a sort of an uncertain one and, I guess, a very individual case-by-case -case one. And talking of those cases, can you give me any specific examples that you've come across? Yeah, so uh, I think uh, a number of countries have had programmes looking at radicalisation in prison for, for some time, uh, and and they've they've published rates of sort of recidivism of individuals who've gone on to reconduct and terrorist activities. In a couple of those examples, they've cited a figure of between fifteen and twenty to uh, twenty percent as an, as a sort of idea of how many people then go on to to continue in their terrorist activities. But again, where you cut the line and where you draw the data from is really crucial. You could do a, a survey sort of six months later, 12 months later, but it's it's such a long-term problem. It's really hard to judge at what point someone has disengaged from the terrorist cause. Well, we've talked a lot about the problems and people are coming to you, countries are coming to you with their problems. What can you say? What kind of guidance can you give? Well, I think um, there is some really great guidance out there from within the UN system, particularly UNODC. But, um, so UNODC? That's uh, the UN Office of Drugs and Crime. Um, so there's existing guidance out there and I think uh, some really great guidance at the principal level. I think where we really need to move towards is more um, specific examples of 
how we translate those principles into actual practices in, in, in prisons around the world. I think we were very clear in this trends alert that it isn't a one one size fits all solution. There will be local or national or regional approaches that will work better in different contexts. But we do think there are some key principles, particularly around um, ensuring that prison prisons are not overcrowded, underfunded, which I think is a, a broader issue than a, a terrorism one, and that the prison officers have got the right sort of training and, and cultural understanding to be able to deal with these issues. Has much of your guidance been implemented? I mean, there's, yeah, certainly within the Security Council resolutions, they have principles, and as I said, we, we assess how countries are, are, are progressing against that, and, and certain member states are doing a good job on that front. I think um, there's a a project that CTED have, have launched in conjunction with um, UNODC and also the UN Office of Counterterrorism, uh, which is a four-year project looking at this management of violent extremist prisoners. Um, so that's really going to focus on three sort of target countries to give them a sense of, you know, assess their prison system, assess the, the sense of the, the scale of the issue, and then try and come up with some actual practical support for them, both in terms of what happens in prison, but also the re- rehabilitation piece, um, preparing them for their release. The report does talk about a real limited evidence base to judge the merits of these programs. It seems there's a real lack of data. Is that something you're concerned about? Yeah, and that's something that um, for for us in CTED and my team specifically, we work very closely with the research community and academia. And I think that's something where researchers can really help do those sort of comparative studies and and that in-depth look at what works and what doesn't. Um, But a lot of that will require data sharing. And I think we really want to encourage member states to, to lean forward a bit more in terms of sharing both their successes but also their failures so that, that other countries can learn from their, their programmes. So it's, it's not an entirely new phenomenon, but the scale of it is new and there are obviously a lot of member states out there who really are struggling in terms of resources. So the more that the better equipped and, and, and better resourced countries can provide support both practically but also in terms of information sharing, the better we'll be able to do. How positive are you that that governments and uh, intergovernmental and intragovernmental organisations will be able to get on top of this situation? Well, I think and you raise a good good point there because I think it really is a, a coordination question as well as the, the resource question and expertise. And I think it has to be a whole of government, whole of society approach that not only relies on, on one agency or one department, but it really is a, a puzzle with a lot of different pieces. And I think we've also been quite clear that civil society groups need to play a, b- a big role as well, particularly around the um, reintegration piece once people leave prisons. Now, the report we're discussing came out in July. On this particular topic, for you and your team, what's next? Well, we're really hoping to sort of use this as a, a way of stimulating debate and, and, and something we can use when we're engaging with member states to say this is something that certain member states have raised as a concern. Is it a concern for you? And use that engagement and, and the projects I mentioned um, over the next four years to really flesh out some um, firm guidelines and some firm principles that, that member states can use. David Wells, thank you very much. Thank you. That was David Wells, coordinator for the Political Analysis and Research Unit for CTED, the UN's Counterterrorism Executive Directorate for the Security Council. You've been listening to The Lid Is On from UN headquarters in New York. I'm Connor Lennon. <laughs>